Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful and grateful to you for your word. We praise you this morning that we have this opportunity to gather and to worship, to come into your presence, gather with your people, hear from you. And as you speak to us here, Lord, this morning, please help us to see you, help us to see your ways, and help us to see how it is we're supposed to live before you, to walk with you, to know and do your will. O Lord, minister now to us, for we ask it in Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at the seven realities of experiencing God, knowing and doing the will of God. And this this is actually just going to be an overview. This is an overview of all seven realities. So if you looked at your bulletin at all, you're wondering, wow, this will be a long one. Seven points. Hours. Hours. 20 minutes each point. It'll be good. <laughs> Hopefully not. This, this is intended to be an overview. So what we can do is we can see it all as a whole because what we're going to do is break it all down. And if we just started going one by one, I don't know if we would see and understand how this all fits together and comes together as one. So this morning we're going to put it all together. It's kind of it's going to be the in some ways the thirty thousand foot level view, and and we're going to see it all and how it all fits together. And then we're going to back off and then break each one down. And before we do that, I want us to remember something this morning that there are three different distinct ways to think of God's will. The first is that God there's God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is His decretal will that He performs and does irregardless of every, anything else. It is the way things happen. God is over all things, controlling all things, and determining all that comes to pass. That's his sovereign will. The sef- second aspect we often talk of is the God's revealed moral will. His revealed moral will is what we have in the scriptures. The scriptures here reveals God's word to us and his, his commands to us and what it is he wants us to do. So We know what his will is for us, but we know a lot of times his revealed moral will is not obeyed. Almost always it's not obeyed. So, but his sovereign will is always obeyed. And then there's a third category, and it's the the individual will. God's will for you. God's will for us. God's will for Redeemer Church as a particular church. These are the different ways we have to understand. When we have a conversation or you hear anyone talking about the will of God, it's not, there's just not one will. We have to understand and, and categorize and realize what we're talking about. So this morning, what we're focusing on and what we're talking about is this individual will. What does God want us to do? And so with, within the, that individual realm of God's will, as I've said a couple sermons ago, it has to do with those areas of life where it's not clear what we are to do, what God wants us to do, what would God have us do? What does God want for me? Where does, you know, especially issues of calling, what would he have me do? Issues of ministry, what areas of ministry as a church, what would he have us do in particular cases in ministering to, the, to one another in the community around us? There's some things that are clear and there's some things that are not so clear. And so within this realm, within the realm of the individual will of God for us, Blackaby came up with these seven realities of how it is we can know the will of of God and do it. 
And I think it, uh, it reflects well a biblical understanding of how it is we go about coming to know the will of God and how it is we walk in it. And so we're going to, again, this is an overview. So, so to begin with, uh, we're going to look at the first reality, which is this. It states that God is always at work around you. God is always at work. John 5, uh, 5 17, in there, Jesus said to the Pharisees who were coming after him and harassing him about the Sabbath because apparently they thought he was doing work. And many occasions, even if he went out and did anything, he was out there you know, picking some grain heads and eating them, that that was considered work to them. They were perverting it completely. But Jesus answers them, and he says this, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. In other words, God doesn't sit around in heaven and wonder how everything is going on down there on earth. Wonder what's happening down there. Wonder how we should check it out every now and then and see what's going on as we go about our crazy lives. No, he's actively at work always. In fact, he's so involved that as Acts 17.28 puts it, in him we live and move and have our being. Or as Ephesians 1 says, he works, hear what he says there? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's, a, there's that aspect of his sovereign will, his decretal will. He works all things, everything that happens on the earth according to his will. And then there's Matthew 10, 29, where Jesus says that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. Scripture is laden with the fact that God is actively involved in our world, even knitting us together in our mother's wombs. His power and his governing capabilities are beyond our imaginations. It's hard to imagine How could God do this? How could he be so involved? He's at work constantly upholding, forming, shaping, molding, governing, directing. He's intimately involved in all things. So one thing we have to remember, and always it needs to be a fixed pillar in understanding God, is that he is at work constantly. Where you function, where you live, constantly. Even now as I speak, God is at work. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. He's governing all things that come to pass. He's working in people's hearts and minds in the community around us. He's at work. He knit them together as well as us. He's raising up and he's bringing down authorities and powers. He works in the principalities and powers of the air, the ones that we do not see, the spiritual powers. And he's working in our lives right now. God is at work. As a result of this, we don't ever have to think that he needs us before he will do something. One thing we have to get, and that's the thing we have to get clear. He doesn't need us, and I've mentioned before, but he does use us. He delights to use us. In fact, that's how he works in the world. For example, he could have delivered the people, his people from Egypt all by himself. In fact, he pretty much did do it all by himself. But what he does is he wants to work through people. So he calls Moses. So God does all the work, right? But he's doing it through Moses. He wants Moses 
Moses, stick your staff in the water. So he does this. So God works, and he works through Moses. And this is how he wants to do it, his work in the world. He's actively at work, but one thing we have to understand, he doesn't need us to work. But he chooses to work because he created this world with us on it, and the way he created it is that we are the players on the stage. He works through us to accomplish his will. He wants us to follow him and fulfill his plans. But we have to remember that he wants to use us. He doesn't need our plans. He doesn't need our ministries. He doesn't need our ideas. He doesn't need us to go get busy and get to work for him. Like thinking, God, we're going to do a bunch of work for you this year. Let's sit down and we're going to figure out what the work plan is. We're going to make a plan and God, you are going to be so impressed with us. We're going to go out there and we're going to expand your kingdom. We're, we are going to do a lot of work and we're going to get, we're going to roll up our sleeves and get busy. Thanks guys, but um, I already have a plan and I don't need yours. And the way this whole relationship works is you have to understand one thing. I do the working, you do the doing, I work through you. So I'll give you my plans. I'll give, you, I'll give you what it is I want you to do, and I'll work through you. And it's important for us to understand that because so often we go running around and we're going to do a bunch of stuff for God, thinking that's, that that's how it works. But it doesn't work like that. No, he's doing the work, and he's going to work through us. He immobilizes us to fulfill his plans. Now, that's the thing. They're his plans, and it's his work, not ours. But before he does that, there's one thing, there's this next reality that we need to see. Before God, before God does his work through us, which he does his work, and he, and he ha- already has a plan, before he does it through us, God pursues a relationship of love with us. The idea here is that God is first and foremost into, interested in our relationship with him. More than us going and doing a bunch of works. All you have to do is look at most of Paul's letters, especially Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. What do you notice about all those books? God primarily, uh, sorry, uh, God, I'll just start at the top and work my way down. Paul, this is what I'm trying to say. He primarily wants us to get grounded somewhere and in something. He wants us to understand the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Firmly establish the gospel before you do anything. If you notice something, just take Romans, for example. Romans, the the book, the way it's organized, you got one all the way through chapters 11 are just Paul, point by point, laying out the gospel and its implications in our lives. This is what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. This is who you are as, as a result of Christ Jesus. This is your status now before God as a result of Christ Jesus. This is what you have as a result of Christ Jesus. This is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And 11 chapters, he's laying it out. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he turns a corner and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And now from there, he goes on to make practical applications of the mercies of God in Christ Jesus for you. And he just has a couple chapters remaining where he starts to apply what this means in your life before you do any work. We could look at Ephesians, right? The first three chapters, the same thing. The last three, the application. 
And this is how God wants us to understand one thing. That the first and foremost priority God has for you is not like, okay, get out, get to work, get going, would you? Get doing some works for me. Come on, I need you. I need them. No, primarily, the first thing he wants us all to understand and the most important thing that we, that we get grounded in is understand this. God wants you to know that he's loved you and given himself for you. And in fact, he's done so much for you that it ought to blow your mind. And until you, you get to the place where you know God's love for you, and then you're at that place where you understand who he is and what he's done for you, then it's there that God begins to use you. God's not interested in you just running around doing a bunch of stuff for him. He wants what you do to be at, like the Romans 12 turning point. Where in view of God's mercy, in light of what God has revealed to us, in light of what he's done to us, we now present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. Here I am, body and soul, I am yours, O God. And we, you know what, we will never get to that place. You will never be able to offer up yourself wholly and completely to God with everything in you. Say, everything I am and everything that I have is yours, O God. It's all yours. Here I am for you to use me however you desire and please. You will never get to that place until you know the love of God in your life. You can fake it. You can try it all you want. But you won't trust him. You won't abandon your heart to him. You won't love him fully and completely. You will not give yourself to him. You might say, you know, I've tried, but I can't. You're right, you can't. And you cannot until you know his love for you. You've got to be convinced of his love for you. You've got to understand what he's done for you. And in light of what he's done for you and your understanding of that, you turn now and you go, Lord, here I am, take me. And that's the first thing that God's interested in. And it comes to like doing anything for God. Forget it. He's not going to reveal his plans to you. He's not going to guide you and direct you in so many ways until you get this straight. I want you to know something. I don't need you, but I want you. You have to understand my love for you. And when you, when you get that, and then all of a sudden you abandon yourself to him, now God begins to do some, some great things through you. But we often want to get, hey, God, would you just do some really good things through me? It would be really cool if I could do some, some wonderful works in this world. I sure would love to leave a legacy. I sure, you know, I would love to transform this world for you. But if you say that, and, and, and in saying that, that's not just a heart that loves God in response to his love for you. That statement is filled with pride. You know what you want? You want Glory. You want honor. You want God to use you because like, I, could, I could imagine how cool this would be. Wouldn't it be great? God using me. Whew, I could just see it now. Turning the world upside down. Yeah, you could see it now. And you just, you know, you love the idea of, of God doing something great and using you in a great way for you. And so this is why the fundamental issue that has to get resolved in our hearts is God's love for us and our love for him. That has to start there. And so the motivation, and we just see, we understand his love, and we, we present ourselves holy and pleasing to him. Here I am, O oh Lord. I'm yours. The next reality is that God reveals his work to you. Or as Blackaby put it in his book, he said, God invites you to join him in his work. 
And the reason I changed the wording a little bit is because I'm not so sure the word invite conveys what God does with his servants. He He wants to, God actually reveals to his servants what he's going to do and how he's going to use them. It's, as I've looked throughout scripture and I went throughout and I started looking at these different examples, I started realizing that, you know, maybe perhaps invite isn't the best word. It'd probably be better to say reveal what he's doing and what he wants to do through his servants. Think for a moment. Think of Noah. God revealed his plan to Noah. And then he commands him to execute it. Think of Abraham. God called Abraham to leave his homeland and then revealed to him what he was going to do through him. Think of Isaac and Rebekah. God revealed that the older was going to serve the younger. We could look at Joseph, Joshua, and the judges, and we would see the same thing. God reveals himself to them, reveals what he's going to do, and then tells them what role he wants them to play. Even with Moses, God revealed to him what he was going to do, and then told Moses what role he wanted Moses to play. So as I look at it, it seems that perhaps invite isn't the best way to put it. It's not like he's, it didn't seem like he was too much doing too much inviting as much revealing and then, in a sense, commanding, saying this is what I want for you. But the main thing we need to understand in this reality is that it is God who comes up with the idea, with the plan, with the strategy. We don't get in a room and make our plans and strategies, as I've said. God is already at work. And God will bring you and me into that work by revealing it to us. It is God who leads us, not us. He's the one in charge. We're the ones who follow. And so this, in that particular reality, we have to understand that it's God reveals to us his plan. He reveals to us what it is he wants us to do. And in there, there's a calling to go and do and fulfill his work. And in short, this, it's connected to this next reality. Because these two go together. God reveals his plan, and how does he do that? Well, that's where he says, God speaks to us. God speaks to you. But in saying this, when he says God speaks to you, he's not saying that, you know, hey, Dean, I got a plan for you. Like there's some audible voice that we're going to hear. That's not, that's not how God speaks to us. And because God doesn't communicate to, like two people communicate with one another in the same way, we have to learn and understand how does God reveal his will to us? That's a question, right? Have you ever asked that? How does God reveal his plan to us? How does God speak to us? That's a, that's a question I've wrestled with a lot and, and continue to do so. But we're going to look at the five ways God speaks to us, and these are actually going to end up being five separate sermons because I think there needs to be a lot of treatment as, as to how, how do we discern, how do we understand, and what does it mean when you say the word God speaks to us, what are you talking about? That's a great question. Because if we look at there's five basic ways that, that God does speak to us. He speaks to us through the Bible primarily, but he also speaks to us through prayer. He speaks to us through the body of Christ. He speaks to us through circumstances in life, and he speaks to us through creation. Just think of, you know, I even say the word, he speaks to us through creation. Think of Psalm 19. Listen how Psalm 19 words this. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare. That means the heavens speak. The heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And that one particular 
passage right there, we see that the, the psalmist is talking about creation is speaking to you. God is speaking constantly. And so often we don't hear him. We don't discern it. That's why the atheist, as it says in Romans 1, says in his heart there is no God. Because he's gotten to this place by denial and rejection. Because he says, well, the loudspeaker was on for a long time. And maybe you just got too monotonous and you didn't hear it. Because he says that even in Romans 1, his invisible attributes, they're not just seen. He didn't say vaguely seen. He says his invisible attributes are clearly seen in the things that are made. His invisible attributes. The Godhead is to be understood. So God is speaking. That's just one small example of how God, God is speaking. We have to be able to discern what is God saying and how does he communicate with his people. And that's a huge, a huge reality because any relationship that is going to grow and develop, there needs to be a communication. Have you ever been in a situation where you can't communicate with a person? And all of a sudden you realize, this is difficult. This is hard. And it's, I, I don't see this relationship going very far. It's because we're, we're having a tough time at charades right now. And uh, it's just, it's difficult. And so we end up pulling away because we can't communicate. Relationships require communication. And we have to grow and learn and understand and discern how does God communicate with us. And that's what we're going to look at. Because we also, at the same time, we have to be discerning. And we have to realize um, when is God speaking and when is he not. We, we're in a day and an age where we've heard a lot of people talk about God speaking to them, the hearing God's voice. And by, the, by their lives and by what they say and by what, how you, you, know, you know what God has already said in his Bible, you're going... That wasn't God speaking to you, probably something else or someone else, but it wasn't God. And so you have to be able to discerning because people like to say that, you know, it, it actually gives people a trump card. I don't know if you've been in some circles where it's really difficult when someone pipes up and they said, God spoke to me or told me. And it's like, how do I contradict? <laughs> how do I disagree with you right now without creating a great big hubbub or problem? Because I don't believe that was the voice of God. And, and the reason being is because we have, God has declared certain things and put in certain foundations in the ground here in his word, and it just, it doesn't fit. So it, we, we need to have discernment. We need to understand that when it comes to hearing God's voice and God speaking to us, it's, it's neither weird, trippy, or like some person on LSD. It's not like that at all. It's, we'll come to realize that it actually can be a very clear understanding that God gives us through these means that he's put in place. We also need to understand, as we look at this whole area, um, that God uses different means and different ways to communicate, just like uh, we do this as well. And we're going to look more in depth at this, but just think for a moment what I say when I do something like this. If I was to look at you and I go like this, right, like that, did I just communicate? I did. It communicates something. And we have a lot of gestures, common gestures that we have, that communicate things. We, we can even we can wave at somebody, and if it's put with a smile, you know, like, hey, you can see, oh, they're, they're saying hi to me. So communication isn't just a verbal word. We communicate in, in multiple different ways. And we're going to look at some of that as the, as the weeks come.
But that's the reality of like, and how this progresses is that, you know, God, he develops this love relationship with, he, with us and that he has, he, he actually has um, a plan that he reveals to us and God speaks to us. And then what ends up happening, you know, when God reveals his plan to us, now this is where it gets difficult for us. Because in this next reality, he talks about that God will lead us to a crisis of faith. God loves to do this. This is where it gets uncomfortable for us, usually. Whenever we, God reveals to, to you his will and communicates to you about what it is he wants you to do, it always leads to a crisis of faith. When God revealed himself and spoke to, to Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, David, Daniel, and we can go on and on, he always gave them something to do that was a challenge to their faith. They all had to decide whether they would believe God's word of promise or the difficult circumstances into which obeying God's word would bring them. God also made it so that his word of promise would often be contrary to what we see with our eyes. With Noah, what did God do? God said that he would save him and his family from his, ju- from his judgment if he built an ark in a place where there was no water and it didn't rain much, if at all. Cool. Um, now I'm going to look like an idiot for a long time. With Abraham, God said to a barren old man, an old woman, hey, guess what? I'm going to make your descendants as the stars of heaven. Great. Can't have kids. That'd probably be the first way to start. And we're really old. We're past the age of childbearing. I know, God says. That's perfect. That's how he works. With Joseph, God said, he gives him a dream, and he he says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to exalt you above all your brothers, and they will bow down to you. But they throw him in a pit to die. The ones who are going to serve him and bow down to him, throw him in a pit to die. Figure that one out. Oh, so much for that word of promise, right, God? How would you feel sitting at the bottom of that pit? As far as you know, it's over for you. That's why they throw him in there, to die. With Moses, God said, I will deliver, through him I'll deliver my people. But, understand this. Moses is going, me? I'll deliver my people through you. But who's he going up against? The largest and most powerful nation on the planet at the time. (laughs) Me? (laughs) Against them? Yeah, that's, it. that's God, isn't it? Isn't that what God does? He leads us to a crisis of faith. We could go on and on. Even this morning, what was read for us? Do you remember the story of Gideon? And what God tells Gideon, he says, yeah, I, I'm gonna, um, you're going to save your people. Deliver them. That's what often he uses the judges to deliver his people. And Gideon's response is great because it's just like the way we would think. A crisis of faith, wasn't it? Um, I am the least of my family and we are the least of the nations of the tribes of Israel let me repeat least smallest and you're going to have, use me to deliver us from the Midianites and God goes on from there we know the story of, uh, of Gideon he goes yeah absolutely actually and when he builds his army he says like, it's actually way too big 
You need to be much smaller than this. And so he goes against this army of multiple thousands, and he whittles it down to 300. And God says, I love those numbers much better. Because in fact, in Gideon, you're going to see, I don't even really need you. I just want you to follow me, and I'll use you, and you'll watch me work. And that's the, that's the way God does it. He brings us to a crisis of faith when he reveals his plans for us. And as a result, and these, this is connected, the next reality is this. God will require you make an adjustment. <laughs> it requires your life make an adjustment. It should almost go without saying, shouldn't it? That if, if you're going to obey God and follow after him, what is he going to do? What is he up to doing? Well, he will, if, he, if he requires you to you go into have a crisis of faith, he's asking you to do something that's very difficult and sometimes causes great wrestling in your own life. Like, why, God? Why me? What, what, are you, what are you doing? How is it possible? This doesn't work. This doesn't add up. And we go through that whole process. We know that if we go and we obey, it's clearly going to enjoy, uh, uh, imply a change, of course, in our life. We have to make an adjustment. We can never say that where we are, we can never stay where we are and continue to do what we are doing and obey what it is that God has for us. God, in obeying God, means we move. It means we make a change. It means that we go forward. Just think of Noah again. He'd have to adjust his schedule quite a bit, put away some hobbies, and start doing some things in his spare time, like building this big boat, right? And we could go on and on. Everybody, Abraham, when he's called out from his people, well, massive adjustment. I've got to get rid of everything, lighten up, and I've got to move away from my family. And on and on we go. Gideon, he had to tear down his father's altar. That would have been another crisis of faith. Burn it, offer a sacrifice on it, and then follow God. Major adjustment to his life. He probably thinks he's got fat going to lose his life um, for doing what he did to his father's altar. You know, even when I came out here, when I made the decision to, to come out here, it was, I guess, a little over 13 years ago now, I was reflecting on this as I came out here. And I remember the, when I first came out, I said, when I was leaving, I would, I would never live here, ever. It felt a place like an anthill. There was people everywhere. I was from a small town, small communities, and this just was like people everywhere. And I remember driving away, telling Antonio that, man, I would never live here. I should, well, I probably shouldn't have said that. God has different plans. And God made it obvious and made it clear this is where he wanted us in very, very clear ways. And uh, that's, a, that's a whole story in and of itself about how God uh, led us out here. And what's amazing is that when you do follow God, it means major adjustments. It always does. So you've got to pack up everything and move to a land or go somewhere. I'm not saying that's what you have to do, but in my particular case, that's, that's what it involved. And it, made, it meant major adjustments to our lives that into a, a place that felt so foreign to us. But following the will of God means that. It means that we, in life, be prepared. You are going to have to make adjustments. And if you've walked with God long enough, you could say, oh, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. You have to make adjustments. And then finally, what happens, this is the last reality, as we obey God... God will be experienced, and we, as we 
as we follow him and watch him work, all of a sudden our lives begin to change and we begin to experience God in ways that we never have before. When we obey and go and do as he's called us to do, we begin to see God work through us and around us in ways that are both exciting and faith-building. Noah had no idea what a fearsome display of God's might he was going to experience and be delivered from. But when he did, he saw the hand of God and he saw his deliverance and praised him. Moses had no idea how awesome the grandeur of God's power was going to be as God used him and he saw him work through him. Gideon had no idea how amazing it was going to be to see God destroy Israel's enemies before him with a tiny group of men. We looked at the story a couple weeks back about the story of Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel. He had no idea how amazing it was going to be to follow God into battle and they didn't do anything but sing and see God work. When we follow God and obey him in what it is he's calling us to do, sometimes seems crazy, we see him work. And when we see him work, we experience him in ways we haven't ever before, and it changes our lives. We only experience God. That's the thing. We only experience God as we take the step of faith and trust God to do what only he can do and then see his mighty hand at work. And as we see him work, it's amazing. God is glorified. Our lives are changed. We're different people as a result of it. And, of course, this will mean that we understand the difference between presumption and faith, between jumping and going ahead of God and walking and following God. There's two different things. But as we learn to walk with God, we're going to experience his power in our lives in marvelous ways. We're going to see him do things in us and through us that we didn't expect. And as we walk through and as we look at these seven realities of how it is we experience God, I pray that as we do this, as we go through this, we truly will learn about what it means to walk with God, what it means to know and do the will of God. And by doing so, we experience God as we never have before. So to wrap this up and bring it all to a conclusion, here are the seven realities all together as we come to know and do the will of God. It begins here. This is where it begins. It begins with the fact and the understanding that God is always at work around you. But the first thing he's interested in establishing with you is a relationship based on love. And once that is established, God begins to reveal his work to you, and he communicates to you as to what it is he has for you. But what always happens is that this will inevitably lead you to a crisis of faith. And God, from there, will require you to make adjustments in your life. And then once you go, follow God, trusting and obeying God, you will experience him and see his mighty work through you. This, these are the realities of how it works. How do we walk with God? How do we follow him? As we walk through each one, you will see that this is how the Christian life works. This is how it is we're to follow God. This is how we, it is we experience him. And I have to, I have to say, this is something I would say. I would guarantee all of us want to know, all of us want to do, if we are children of God, if we are his children, we will want to know him, we will want to follow him, we will want to know what it means to follow him, we will want to experience him, and we want to see him work in us and through us. 
Because I can't think of anything greater in life than to see God work. See him work in, in, in your life. See him work through your life. See him work in the world. To watch God and to see what God does and watch him do what he does. It leads us to one, one thing. It leads us to praise. It leads us to worship. It leads us to delight in him. It leads us to lift up his name. Because at the end of the day, if God's doing it all from beginning to end, he's the one who gets the praise. You know, it's, it's great to walk with God absolutely convinced in your own heart and your own mind that it had nothing to do with you. You're like, please, believe me. If you think it had no, something to do with me, you're insane. This was all God. And, and in the way, when you walk with God properly and he's working through you, you can clearly see that it's not me at all. It's, it's God. It's all God. Please don't give me any credit. Please. And then God gets all the glory. And if we're walking with God in a right manner, that's how it works. And then we praise him and we delight in him and we praise him and we delight in him and God continues to work through us. And so may that be what happens to us as his people. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can understand how it is you work in our lives and how it is we're to walk with you and how it is we're to serve you and follow you and submit to you and obey you. We praise you that you... You give us your word and you guide us and you direct us and you teach us and instruct us in the ways that we should go. I ask, Father, that you truly would make these realities a reality in our lives and so that we would walk with you in this way. For we ask it in Christ. Amen.